Well, guys, we've talked about Star Wars. We've talked about Bond. It's time to get into the MCU. And I got to say, the first chapter, Iron Man, I feel nostalgic, guys. I feel nostalgic for a time where people were present. You know, the, men the members of the Avengers were actually involved in their movies. Out we're watching WandaVision. Where, where are the Avengers, okay? Where are the Avengers? Hashtag Avengers, where are you? I miss these days where I didn't have to question where the other members were at all times to help out. What do you guys think? Where are you at with this? I think you're on to something. I think uh, Falcon has not stepped into his leadership role very well at all without Captain America. I mean, does he even know what's going on with Wanda? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, dude, literally, Wanda has a deed that Vision left for her, a house to live together. He's dead. Her brother's dead. Her parents are dead. She's crying so bad she created a sitcom world. Where is Falcon? I don't care where the Avengers are. Austin, you are onto something. Where is Falcon? This all, <laughs> the blame falls on him. <laughs> Falcon organized that 45-person funeral for Tony Stark. What did Vision get? He got dissembled in a in a car manufacturing plant. Where, yeah, where was Vision's funeral? Every single person we've ever seen in these movies was at T Tony Stark's funeral. What about Vision? I've, I've been saying this for years. What about Vision? Keith, would you have gone to Vision's funeral? I don't know. <laughs> what? You're worse than Falcon. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three podcast hosts, soon to be replaced by Don Cheadle, with nothing better to do. I'm Austin Terry, and Captain America asked me to watch his jockstrap. I'm Keith Baker, and I actually auditioned to replace Terrence Howard in Iron Man 2. And I'm Matt Johnson, and Tony Stark was able to build me in a cave with a box of scraps! On today's show, we'll be kicking off our MCU Phase 1 series and review with Iron Man. This will be a bi-weekly series that will take us all the way up to 2012's The Avengers. But first, Matt, how was WandaVision this week? All I will say is Austin and I felt like the show lost just a little bit of momentum the last couple weeks. But this one, I think all I'll say is I think we're in a good spot setting up for the finale. So I'm excited for next week. I really love the episode, so I'm excited to see where things go. So definitely, if you're out there listening and you have a WandaVision addiction, just like we do, go check your podcast feeds wherever you get your podcast, because we've reviewed every single episode so far, and we will be back next week for the finale. Awesome. Be sure to check those out every Sunday. And my friends, let's do it. Today, we'll be discussing the movie that launched the MCU as we know it, 2008's Iron Man. 13 years ago, Robert Downey Jr. was tapped to revive his career and start a franchise that will seemingly never end. Sitting here today in 2021, the MCU Phase 4 has just started. WandaVision is a hit, and we are basking in the post-Endgame glow that capped off one of the most successful movie arcs to ever hit the big screen. So how do we feel taking a look back at Iron Man? Does this movie still feel like it fits into the MCU as we know it? Well, we're going to break that all down. Matthew and Keith, before we roll the music, why don't you give me your opening statements on Iron Man? I think this is still my favorite MCU movie. Really? It might be. Whoa. I, I, I'd have to go rewatch, which we are. We're going to rewatch the rest of them to really nail that down. But this is still really high up for me. I was not expecting that, Keith. I, I think Iron Man is good. I think it's a solid start to the MCU. I think there are certainly today aspects that do not hold up very well. I think it feels so small scale compared to what we have right now, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, they didn't really know. Nobody could have predicted what the MCU was going to become back in 2008. Yeah. Um, I just am still so blown away with Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, though. He's the best part of this movie. He's the best part of all the Iron Man movies. And I'm so glad he was picked to play that role. Yeah, kind of like Keith said, I was also really excited to not only watch Iron Man again, but just start this new series that we're reviewing, kind of looking back. And uh, the MCU is kind of a different case than something like Star Wars or Bond, because it's just there's been so many movies and not that great of an amount of time, I guess you would say. I mean, 13 years is a long time, but still, like, over 20 movies, all these spinoffs, TV shows, it's crazy. So I was excited to get back to the beginning, and I gotta say, yeah, I, I saw this movie in theaters, and I loved it at the time, saw it a few more times, I'm sure, over the years, and always liked it. And this time, I, I was surprised how much it did hold up for me. Um, so I think I'm a bit higher on it than Austin, but there are definitely things and little elements here and there that really don't work anymore, and we're gonna, I made a point to talk about this later. I think superhero movies, a lot of them just have a third act problem. And this one is just, 
it's kind of up there in terms of how goofy and stupid it can be. But you know what? <laughs> Overall, the whole package, I really like this movie and I still do. So I was happy that it held up for me. I'm, I'm glad you brought up how you felt at the time, because I, I remember seeing this movie back in 2008, little 12-year-old, 13-year-old Austin, and I thought this was just the coolest shit I'd ever seen on screen. So at the time, this movie was just such a surprise, because I, I don't think anybody expected Iron Man to be a good movie, and what we got was just such a surprise on screen. Absolutely. This was Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback time, too, and he it was. did this in Sherlock Holmes. Tropic Thunder the same year. I mean, McConaughey has the McConaissance. What do we call this stage of Robert Downey Jr.'s career? The Junior-assance? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. The junior The Junior Revival? I don't know what you would call it, because no disrespect to my man RDJ, I feel like we can just call it the MCU glow-up, maybe, because this guy has shit the bed every opportunity since. <laughs> what happened to Doolittle, guys? What about The Judge, starring him and Robert Duvall? Remember that one? <laughs> like, no, we don't give a shit. <laughs> I remember that one. All those movies kind of suck. But uh, you know what? The MCU paid dividends for him, so I hope he kind of gets back on his feet. Well, we're going to roll our segue music, and when we come on back, it'll be time for the movie facts of Iron Man. All right, Keith, here we are. It's 2008. Why don't you run down our cast and crew for Iron Man? All right. We got Mr. John Favreau as the director. Screenplay by Mark Fergus, Hawk Otsby, Ark Markham, and Matt Holloway. Movie score composed by Raman Jawadi. And, of course, characters created by the one and only Stan Lee. As for our cast, we got Mr. Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts, Terrence Howard as Rhodey, Sean Tube as Jensen, Clark Gregg as Phil Coulson, with Paul Bettany as Jarvis, and a bald Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane. So, guys, any highlights here as far as the cast goes? Dude, I forgot Jeff Bridges was in this movie. He looks like a different person in this movie. I Whenever I was looking at the cast and I was like, holy shit, that was Jeff Bridges. I did not even like, it even cross my mind while I was watching it that it was Jeff Bridges playing Obadiah Stone. Different role for him, for sure. I, yeah, I think I mean, Jeff Bridges, I think I think Big Lebowski. True Grit, maybe. Tron. I mean, I think the point is it's a villain. So it's just, it feels weird because he's one, he's like the Tom Hanks. He has that Tom Hanks factor. It's just, there's always such like a heart and good vibes coming from him that it's always I, I appreciate that he went after the villain role because I like his performance. But as we've talked about on this podcast over almost a year now, we've been doing this. Lots of great performances doesn't mean the writing supports them all the time. And this is a great example of that. But I definitely think the performance is a highlight. Um, as for me, I mean, do we need to talk about how good Robert Downey Jr. is in this? I, we will as we go on. But obviously, he's a highlight. No doubt about that. I think everybody on here is really good. Gwyneth Paltrow, I think, gives in a really fun performance as Pepper Potts, and I really like the rapport that she and Tony have and how that kind of evolves without really fully leaning into a relationship by the end. Maybe this is a hot take. I don't think it should be, but here's the thing. I love Don Cheadle. I'm a big Don Cheadle fan, um, even outside the MCU. I think he's just a damn good actor. The thing I really like about Terrence Howard in this is something they lost going forward, in my opinion. We'll talk about it whenever we get to Iron Man 2. I love how they feel like old friends in this movie. And I think a large part of that is because of Terrence Howard's performance. And they do not feel like that going forward. They feel like business associates slash partners in the future. I really like the friendship here. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is whenever uh, he finds Tony and and they uh, bring him back. And there's that scene where he kind of mocks him. The, the, fir the first thing he says is like a joke. He's like, how's the fun V? And he's like, next time you come with me. And they hug. And it's like, it's a really, these are old friends. And I really love his performance. And I'm actually, even though I love Don Cheadle, I, I kind of would have liked to have seen what Terrence Howard could have done in the future of this. I think the scene you called out is Terrence Howard's only good scene in this movie. I think the rest of the movie, it feels like he's sleepwalking. And maybe it's just because oh. he's underused. He is not in it as much as I remember. That is true. I, I just think he seems so bored in this role. But I do love that that airplane scene. And then the last shout out I'll give is uh, Sean Tube is Yinsen. I really like that character and I like that performance. And it's funny because I feel like most superhero movies or just movies in general, they would have had something where they both do successfully escape. And then uh, Yinsen is like, 
or they're about to part ways or something. And then Yinsen's like, well, actually, I can't go back to my family because they died. You know, I thought I was going to die. So I was going to go see them. And then Tony Stark's like, all right, Yinsen, you're my family now. You come with me. And then like the rest of the movie, he's kind of like an assistant and helps out Tony throughout the rest of the movie. But I like that they used his death for more than just a death. Or it could have been they do part ways. Yinsen takes what he learned and then becomes a villain, too. That also could have been an arc for this to take as well. And yeah, they chose the third option, which isn't used very often, which is they killed him pretty early in the movie and they gave it some emotional resonance that not only makes him a real cool character, but you see how that affects Tony and the decisions he makes going forward at the movie. So great performance as well. What about you, Austin? Did you have any other people you wanted to shout out? My biggest other shout out was going to be Jensen. I thought he was just so good. And I forgot how important that character is to this film. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, let's get into our... Fun facts slash production nightmares. Matt, what did you find for us today? All right. Well, I have a lot for you guys. I was pleasantly surprised how much interesting stuff I could find on this movie. So let's get to the first, the big one. I think the one that most people know, but still worth shouting out if you don't. Director John Favreau wanted Robert Downey Jr. because he felt the actor's pass was right for the part. He said the best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Robert brings a depth that goes beyond a comic book character having trouble in high school or can't get the girl. Favreau also felt Downey could make Stark a likable asshole, but also depict an authentic emotional journey once he won over the audience. Favreau had to fight the studio to cast Downey. They agreed after Downey's screen tests blew everybody away, but they only paid him $500,000. And for context, 11 years later, Downey would earn $75 million for Avengers Endgame. Jeez, crazy. crazy. Yeah, I was surprised at how hard John Favreau actually had to fight to get Robert Downey Jr. in this movie. Um, I, for some reason, I just remembered it being like a marriage of, of like perfection. But I, I, I didn't realize that Marvel actually fought against having Robert Downey Jr. in this movie. Did uh, did they say who was up? You know, in the running for the role. Yes, I will bring that up in a little bit. But also, just a, on this point, a fun fact, and I will. Get, I'll dive further into it in a bit. Terrence Howard, actually, for those that don't know, whenever he was the first person cast in Iron Man, the movie, and he was just coming off an Oscar nomination for Hustle and Flow. For those that don't know, once you start getting nominated for Oscars, and definitely if you win one, you're kind of, um, your paycheck goes up, right? So he was paid significantly more than Robert Downey Jr. for this movie, and that kind of played a part in the future why he didn't come back. So just interesting to note. Another thing I think a lot of people know about this movie, and I think in good and bad ways it shows in the final product, the script was not completely finished when filming began. Since the filmmakers were more focused on the story and the action, the dialogue was mostly ad-libbed throughout filming. Director John Favreau acknowledged this made the film feel a bit more natural from his perspective. Some scenes were shot with two cameras to capture lines improvised on the spot. Robert Downey Jr. would ask for many takes of a scene since he wanted to try something new. Gwyneth Paltrow, on the other hand, had a difficult time trying to match Downey with a suitable line as she never knew what to say since he changed every single take. And I want to talk about this real quick. I think it's cool. You can tell Downey's improvising and he has a very natural flow and he speaks quick and he's he's just really witty. So it works. I do feel a little bit bad for some of the other actors he worked with because it can come off sometimes like they just don't really know what to say and they left it in the movie. So it does kind of feel at times there isn't a script and there are moments where it's like, oh, that's a jump in logic. I think that kind of falls on the casting director because if you're going to cast somebody like Robert Downey Jr. who is known for his improvisation and and the way he speaks and all that, I think you kind of have to cast people around him that also know how to do improv and are willing to kind of take what he gives and and react upon it. Maybe, and maybe maybe it's just natural to his character too. I mean, that's how Tony is. So he'll say something stupid and, or or crazy and yeah, the character that's uh, uh, posing might not know what to say, might just be speechless. So maybe it's a maybe it actually looks natural on screen. I was also I don't know if you saw this either, Matt, but I was also surprised to see how many iterations the script went through even before mm-hmm. John Favreau was attached. Because I guess Marvel was trying to get this made since like the nineties. Yeah, since nineteen ninety. They ran through so many different directors, so many different writers, and then this script is eventually what finally made it to the screen. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a second here. But first, a fun little thing, just a quick one. Paul Bettany has never seen the film and is very unfamiliar with the plot. 
which I thought was so funny. He said Jarvis was the easiest job ever and it was almost like a robbery since he only worked for two hours and got paid a shit ton of money, as he put it. And then he went on vacation with his wife, Jennifer Connelly, who, funnily enough, would later voice the AI in Spider-Man Homecoming. His role would, of course, however, be expanded considerably in the future Marvel films post-Avengers Age of Ultron once he became Vision. I was surprised that it actually was Paul Bettany. For some reason, I thought they... I didn't realize Paul Bettany had voiced Jarvis all the way up until he became Vision. I thought they just took an actor that had a voice that sounded like Jarvis to play Vision. I didn't realize it, was, it had been him for all the movies. So I thought that was really cool. And I just want to know, like, I'm so curious if they told him, like, our plan is for you to eventually become a live action character. Like, I wonder if, if the plan for Vision was always in the works from the start of this movie. Yeah. But he just has an awesome voice, though. And maybe if they would have had someone different, maybe maybe I would say the same thing about them. But I don't know. Something about his his British accent and just the tone of his voice, it works for being Tony's assistant AI. And then it works now, uh, him being Vision. Um, going off Austin's last point, it took approximately 17 years to get the film into development. Originally, Universal Pictures was to produce the film in April of 1990. They later sold the rights to 20th Century Fox, and Fox then sold the rights to New Line Cinema. Finally, Marvel Studios to settle to handle their own creation. Nicolas Cage, Clive Owen, Sam Rockwell, and Tom Cruise were all attached since the 90s. Basically, from the 90s to the early 2000s, those were people that were considered. And then, of course, funnily enough, Sam Rockwell later went on to play a villain in Iron Man 2. It sounds like, from what I could find, Sam Rockwell was the closest to getting the part. John Favreau... Like, he was still in the picture when John Favreau was involved in the project. Like, it sounds like maybe Favreau was okay with Sam Rockwell doing it, and that's what the studio wanted. But, of course, Favreau really pushed Downey. So, it came close, it sounds like. I was also surprised reading that information, too, at how uh, how Marvel Studios' involvement was actually like a deterrent for actors wanting to sign on. Like, at the time, it was not viewed as a good thing that Marvel Studios was making the movie. Nick Cage, though. That would have been interesting. Oh my god, dude. How many how many times has Nick Nick Cage almost played a superhero? Superman. He almost played Scarecrow in an early Batman movie. I have heard that apparently Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige and the team there are actually interested in getting him to cameo in Doctor Strange 2 as Ghost Rider. It's not a joke. I've heard that they they might want him to kind of because they're doing the whole multiverse thing, so it's like they want to use everybody they've ever had. So maybe we'll see Johnny Blaze return to the big screen like we've always wanted. Um, if he does, if he does cameo too, it'll probably be his best performance as Ghost Rider too, because it'll be five minutes long. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> well, Nicolas Cage may be returning to the big screen with the MCU, but we know who isn't Terrence Howard. This was the only movie for Howard to play Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodey Rhodes. Don Cheadle was brought in to assume the role, commencing with Iron Man Two. Here we go. This is where things get kind of interesting to me. Howard was reportedly the first actor cast for Iron Man, as well as the best paid actor on the set, given that Downey was hardly a bankable star at the time. He was promised a three-picture deal, but claimed that he was shut out of the sequel and the studio didn't honor his contract. Although Marvel has never formally commented on the issue, according to insiders, the role was recast because director John Favreau was reportedly unhappy with Howard's performance, which often necessitated reshoots. But... Howard later said that he declined because he was offered a significantly lower salary just so they could use what they would have paid him to increase Downey's salary for the sequel. So it sounds like there's there might regardless of what we think of the performance, it sounds like there's kind of some fucked up stuff going on behind the scenes with this where I was kind of like, that sucks. It's like they took what they would have paid him so they could give Downey more money because now he was famous. And I was like, that that's kind of shitty. That does kind of suck. But I mean, at the same time, too, like. Uh, Robert Downey is carrying the movie, so he definitely sure. did deserve a pay increase. It just shouldn't. It just shouldn't have come from Terrence Howard. I believe, and we'll talk about it when we get to Iron Man two. I think, like we said, he got five hundred k for this one, and he jumped to ten million for the sequel. So you could definitely understand my why, like some actors' paychecks in the sequel might have had to get shifted around to kind of accommodate that. That's kind of an issue with Hollywood in general, though. Like one actor's pay shouldn't impact what another actor makes either. Like there's got to be a way to do that better. If Terrence Howard would have been in the rest of the sequels, I mean, that would have changed his career. Exactly. He would have been, he would be even more famous now than he already is. Can you imagine him flying around in the war machine suit though? I can't at all. I can't anymore. Yeah, I can't anymore now that it hasn't happened. I think he could have been good though. Yeah, I would have liked to see it, but obviously it's it's hard to picture now that Don Tootle has played the character so many times at this point. Yeah. 
But okay, so I know this is going a bit long. But I have two more quick ones. These are very fast. I just thought they were interesting. For some of the shots for the first incarnation of the Iron Man suit, the one from the cave, director John Favreau actually performed the motion capture, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then Austin mentioned this briefly, and this is my last point here. Early drafts of the script, some going back all the way to the 90s, had the Mandarin as the villain, a very popular Iron Man villain that we might or may not see later. But more interesting, I saw this and I had like my jaw dropped. There was one version of the script where the villain was Howard Stark, Tony's father. And at the end of the movie, he becomes War Machine. <laughs> so I was what? like, what? Can you imagine how much that would have changed the MCU today? Because oh they can't God. have Howard Stark like giving Captain America the shield or any of that stuff. And then I guess you don't have Rhodey at all if he be, if Howard becomes War Machine for some reason. So <laughs> I just thought that was funny. But that's all the points I have for you guys. But Austin, this movie, I feel like I remember it being received really well. And obviously people love it. But that being said, I don't actually know what people thought at the time. So how about you fill us in? What did the critics and fans alike think of this movie, positive or negative? So Iron Man premiered in the US on May 2nd, 2008. They made $585 million worldwide against a $140 million budget, so just a smash hit that blew all the expectations out of the water. And you're right, Matt, the film did release the positive reviews from critics and fans alike, and it currently has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. As for things critics liked, uh, they praised the special effects, smart writing, and charismatic charm of Robert Downey Jr. in the lead. They also praised the gritty realism of the first act and felt the film strayed true to the source material while also finding ways to upgrade it. As for the negatives that critics did not like, uh, these criticisms included plot elements that defy logic, an underused supporting cast, and a comic book story that feels familiar. Critics also had major issues with the third act, saying the film goes on autopilot for the conclusion, and the final boss fight feels too predictable. This is one of the few times I feel like I kind of agree with everything that was just said, whether it be positive or negative. I think they kind of nailed it. That's how I feel. I was a bit disappointed with the supporting cast. I think they're all good, but very underused. I guess that is kind of typical for an origin story. You got, obviously got to give a lot of time to our main hero. But um, I agree with everything. The third act is the thing I like the least about the movie, but I still like it overall. What about you, Keith? What stood out to you there? Yeah, I would say the third act as well. And, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning here, saying this is, you know, this movie's still up there for me and still probably one of my favorites, maybe my favorite. But watching the third act this time in particular, I was a little disappointed with it, but I don't want to get into why yet. Because sure, there, yeah. there's lots of things, there's lots of nitpicky things to point out. I think the biggest issue I have is the praise of the smart writing. I think the, the I think the writing is really smart for Tony Stark. I think it's pretty bad for other characters. So it seems yeah. like a lot of their efforts and rewrites went to Robert Downey Jr.'s character. It was a training exercise. What? Literally, there's two guys in iron suits fighting in L.A. on the street. It's a training exercise. Don't worry about it. No, I can see them. <laughs> I, I can see it's not. <laughs> we have a photo of it. <laughs> yeah. So there's some silly leaps in logic, which I agree with. All right. So those are our movie facts. Matt, let's head into our roundtable discussion. Take it away with our movie summary. The year is 2008. Get ready for MySpace jokes, phones that were supposed to look futuristic, but by today's standards look really weird. And Terrence Howard was king of the world. Welcome, my friends and dear listeners, to... Iron Man. Our hero is Tony Stark, and he's a bit of a wiener. He is very okay with making and selling weapons to the world, and is apparently oblivious to the fact that terrorists can very easily get a hold of these same weapons. After a demonstration, he gets hit by some shrapnel from a Stark bomb going off. He is captured and works with a fellow prisoner named Yinsen to build a missile for the terrorists. He makes a suit instead, which I guess looks enough like a missile to the terrorists. Oh well, who cares? It's an Iron Man suit, and it's pretty badass. They use it to escape and take out the terrorists and their weapons, with Yinsen dying in the process. After being rescued by Don Cheadle, oh, not quite there yet, Terrence Howard brings Tony home. <laughs> and now that Tony has realized apparently weapons of mass destruction aren't good, he announces they will no longer make them. Now, here's the deal. That's my Tony Stark impression. Now, uh, here's the deal. The Jericho missile. <laughs> Stark Industries won't make weapons anymore, but Tony will in his personal workshop, lol. He builds better suits down there with the goal to use it to take out all the other weapons of his still around the world. Stane wants Tony to give info on his arc reactor, and for some reason, Tony won't? I mean, I guess it paid off that he didn't because he was the villain, but at the time, why is he not giving this information? Oh, and I guess I should mention eventually throughout all this, Tony has been flirting with his personal assistant Pepper Potts since the beginning of the movie. Not a great workplace relationship. No, it's a good relationship by the end, but it does beg the question, 
This is your only employee and you're her boss. This is kind of weird. Uh, Stark flies to Afghanistan, which, by the way, how long did that take? Because the way he flies, he's so stiff with his hands at his side and he's like horizontal. Was he just like that for 11 hours? <laughs> I'm so curious about that. Um, it's got to be so sore. I know. He saves the village, though, and takes out the terrorists. He is attacked on the way home and has to tell Future War Machine his identity to call them off. Around this time, Obadiah Stane starts the MCU trend of mostly shitty villains. Then, a bunch of convoluted stuff happens where Pepper goes to Stane's office to see what he's been up to, and Phil Coulson, who I forgot was in this movie, shows up to help. Now, I'm getting a little bored of reading all this, so let's finish it off real quick, just like how this film handles its third act. Stane is a grumpy Gus because he can't make a reactor. He tries to kill Tony to get his. Tony saves himself. Rhodey hasn't been on screen in an hour. Pepper and Coulson go to take down Stane, but he has a huge, shitty-looking suit to use. Stark and Stane battle it out. Rhodey looks at a suit and references playing War Machine in the sequel that he won't end up being in. Stark wins the <laughs> fight, and at a press conference, Tony announces to the world, Uh, I am Iron Man. Now, MCU popularized post-credit scenes from the beginning. In this first one, we see S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury, played by Sam Jackson himself, visit Stark at home to discuss the Avenger Initiative. Okay, let's get into our roundtable discussion. Matt, why don't you kick us off today? All right. So I guess I wanted to start. Let's talk about what exactly makes this movie special. Right. We had the old school Superman and Batman movies, Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy and the X-Men movies. Here and there, we got stuff different, like Batman Begins, but this movie is kind of a cool outlier to me. Like, yes, it has the cheesy elements of something like the Raimi Spider-Man movies, the social implications brought up in stuff like X-Men, the sleek cinematography and sound design of something like Burton's Batman, but I really like how this movie kind of combines all of this into a pretty fun package with some depth here and there. So just to open us up here, what is special about this movie to you guys? Why? What elevates it? as just, it's not something like a standard superhero flick. What made this one launch the MCU? I think I think the biggest thing that stands out to me in this one, especially if you think about 2008, they really do a good job of showing like how Tony Stark's Iron Man fits into the real world. Like it, this actually feels like, it doesn't feel like a crazy supervillain plot or anything like that. Like the first half of this movie really does feel like a gritty war movie. They actually bring up like the social complications with weapons manufacturers and, and like that sort of stuff. So I, I think they do a good job of showing like how Stark Industries, how Tony Stark, how all of this could actually fit into the modern real world. I kind of agree with that. I think that's the best explanation. It kind of stands alone. I mean, even though it's the beginning of the MCU, you can somewhat separate it from the MCU. And I always forget sometimes that this is part of the MCU until you see Phil Coulson come in and you start hinting about S.H.I.E.L.D., and you start to seeing the MC start creeping in there towards the end, but really it does feel like its own movie. It's crazy, too, to see characters like Phil Coulson in this, like, watching it today, and realize, like, Marvel always had this plan. It's not like they saw the success of Iron Man, and then were like, hey, we can make a whole thing out of this. Like, they actually had this from the start, which is so cool to, like, go back and realize today. Absolutely. I just feel like this movie could have been so kind of cookie-cutter in the sense I make weapons. I'm not going to do that anymore, but I will make a suit and then I'll stop people. But there's some really cool elements here. I mean, like watching the scene in the opening where the soldiers get killed and he gets captured and there's just more to it at every corner where there shouldn't be. Like we get this, we get a scene where he literally looks over at a bomb with his name on it and then gets shrapnel because of it. And it's like, it's so believable by the end of that first act, why he would make the decisions he does about wanting to stop and wanting to pivot and he talks about, well, it's mine. I know people are pissed, but it's my name on the building. Like the legacy has to be something more. And I like how it's funny. I like how quick and w like witty it is. But at the same time, there is depth to it. And I feel like a lot of these movies are either really dark or they're really kind of, um, I don't know, cheesy and comical. And this one, I think, really nailed a balance. And of course, it's not perfect, but overall, that's why I think I like it. It really started a trend and I think the big thing you can talk about outside of like characters and shit, like storylines coming back in future movies, they really found a tone here that they really utilized going forward with the MCU. Like a lot of them have this kind of like this element of perfectly balancing levity with some actual real serious like and sometimes socially, I would say, resonant uh, storylines. So it's a special movie still. 
Keith, you mentioned at the top that this might be your favorite MCU movie. Uh, yeah. While I don't fully agree with that, I do think the first act and especially the opening sequence is some of my favorite scenes in the MCU. I love that opening shot in the convoy. I love the stuff of him in the cave building the suit, even though it doesn't make sense when you think about that they're watching him the entire time and he's not clearly building a missile. <laughs> but just yeah. all that stuff is so fun. And I think all those sequences are so perfectly shot, paced, and just executed so well. It's just a great origin story, and like you said, like the beginning of this movie is awesome, and the ca- whole cave thing. I really like the scenes where it's just showing him being like a douchebag too. When he's just he just misses the award ceremony, and he's just playing poker at the cra- or playing at the craps table or whatever. It's a pretty different type of origin than the type of superhero movies that were out at the time too. Because if you think about it, the biggest ones at the time were probably Spider Man and Batman, and both yeah. of them are just dead family members. So that those are the origins and the openings for those movies. And this one's completely different. And I think that's another reason why it felt kind of fresh and new. Well, yeah, it's showing a guy who's already successful in a way, at least wealthy-wise, you know, money-wise, he's successful. But he's not content with his life as far as, like, fulfillment, though. I mean, he's he's successful with his company and all that, but you can tell there's something missing. I, um, I think the cool thing you guys mentioned there that I didn't really know how to articulate is, while I have a deep love for the character of Batman... Just to kind of compare it, because people often do with Iron Man, you know, it's the billionaire that does good in their off time, essentially, right? And I do think this is the movie where he feels the most like Batman. Yeah, well, the thing I like, though, is, again, even though I love Batman, like he said, it's like, it's dead parents, and even though they are successful, we do find out with the origin of Batman how much time he spends in between his parents dying and... um being in his peak as Batman, setting up for that lifestyle. The thing I think is really cool about Tony Stark is it feels, even though he's a billionaire, and there is some realism there. He has no interest in saving the world, being a hero at all. Like, I, I don't think he cares about that. I think he's so content with his life. And then this one event happens, and it fully changes him. And I think some people might argue, well, would he become that noble that quick? That's the beauty of this movie. The opening first act of this entire thing sets up perfectly why he would, why he would make something like this to go out and take out the rest of the weapons of his that are still in the wrong people's hands. So it's just such a natural progression for a hero, and it's so quick, but I like how realistic it is. It's not like Batman. He's not training for years to become this person. It happens so fast, and it's mostly because he's so fucking smart, so... I love that aspect of the character, too. And he also doesn't really become that noble. He's really just building the suit to destroy his weapons and kind of clear his conscience. He's yeah, not even starts. doing this to save the world. It's literally just, I need to get this guilt off of my conscience, so, and this is what I know I can do about it. And then later on in the other movies, that's when it starts to become more of a bigger idealism for him, especially from his interactions with Captain America. Mm-hmm. Perfect, perfect way to put it. And this one, it's still fun to watch because even though it is kind of clearing a guilty conscience, it's still, he's doing good. So it is a perfect like first movie, you know, it's going to set up for more stuff in the future that will kind of advance that. So it's just so perfect. And uh, I guess we've already talked about it a little bit, but when it comes to this movie being special, obviously we can talk about the character and everything we've already talked about, but we should talk about RDJ specifically. He's often been compared to Hugh Jackman or Hugh Jackson for Austin. Um, When it comes to nobody else could play this part, but I want to know, do we think that he nailed it from the get-go? Obviously we know where he ends up almost a decade later, but do you think he was always firing on all cylinders? I think he's perfect in this film. I don't think the MCU is as successful as it is today without Robert Downey Jr. nailing it in the first movie. Because we have talked about kind of how the writing isn't super special in this movie, but I think it is Robert Downey Jr.'s improvisation that really makes that character special. And so I think any other actor in this role, I don't think this movie is received as well without him being so charming and charismatic in the lead. I agree. I'd be curious how much it was improvised, though. Like, is he improvising these dramatic moments as well? Like, is he kind of, like, making decisions that further the plot? Because when I was reading, it also sounds like they didn't really have this sentence at the end. He improvised, I am Iron Man. He just said it, like, on a random take. And then Kevin Feige saw it and was like, you know what? I kind of like that. Obviously, in the comics, even reference it. Like, Iron Man is supposed to be the bodyguard for Tony Stark. But here they were just like, yeah. I'm just going to be Tony Stark. And that kind of informed the rest of the MCU, because if we think about it, uh, secret identities are really not that big of a deal in the MCU like they are in comics. Most characters are known. So it it was interesting to find out how that even something just like a random line he said on the take ended up being a pretty important story element going forward. And and speaking of that, I, I really do like where Tony starts and ends in this film. 
Um, I had forgotten how much character development they were able to fit into this first movie. Even his like character designs from the start and then towards the end of the movie changes. In the opening, he really feels like this sleazy weapons guy with his slick back hair, and that design kind of changes towards the end. I also think the kidnapping was a really effective way to have Tony see firsthand what type of damage uh, his company had been inflicting throughout the world. So how did you guys feel about Tony's evolution through the film? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, like going back to what I said earlier about him being at the craps table and missing his award ceremony and all that and just kind of, like you put a slime bag. And then, yeah, he he has total PTSD, I guess you could say, from the whole cave thing, but it also humbled him a lot. But then it gave him a reason to go back to his shop and start using his actual gifts that he has because he's a smart guy, like super smart guy, like crazy dude. I'm a crazy smart guy. And I just like that you actually get to see that in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's probably Some of my favorite scenes are him. Uh, using his wits and using all of his intelligence that he has. I really like at the beginning too, we get to see how his intelligence like feeds into his sleaziness too. Like even in his sales pitch, he looks so bored. Oh yeah. Whenever he's pitching the weapon stuff to the army, um, he's, he's like you said, Keith, he's bored with the presentations. I joked about it in the plot recap, but cause like, you know, he's a weapons manufacturer and it takes it happening to him personally to realize, oh, whoa, people that aren't the military can get this? They can get my weapons? It's like, no shit, People Tony. die from my weapons? There's literally a scene later on in the movie where he gets pictures of, like, um, terrorists using his weapons and he goes to open eyes and he's like, um, d- d- have you seen these? Like, are we dealing behind the door? It's like, Tony, what are you talking about? Yes, we knew that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just a bit silly. But you know what? Look, it's a comic book movie. You have to suspend disbelief here and there. And I totally agree with you guys. Despite that goofiness, it is so interesting to watch him evolve as the movie goes on, like we've already talked about. Like, I guess you could say there is kind of a beautiful element to this whole he never really had he sold the weapons, right? He never used them. But then a bomb lands next to him. He sees the damage these can cause, the death that happens. And it's like he immediately gets back and calls it off, which I think there is some nobility there. You know, it, there is some growth. So that's cool. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, he is very different than he was at the end. At the beginning, he's like, that's how dad does it. That's how America does it. And it's worked <laughs> out pretty well so far. <laughs> at the end, not so much. I also do love, dude. The scene whenever he first flies the Iron Man suit uh, to that village in Afghanistan and takes out his own weapons, that's the best combat scene in the movie. It's oh way better than that final third act. Also, can we talk about it, guys? The sound mixing, the sound design in this movie is top tier. I feel like Iron Man's repulsors are just as iconic as a lightsaber sound. Like, I know that sound anywhere. It's so cool. I love it. Every time his body contorts and like turns and then just like the hand pulls back slightly as it comes out. Ah, it just everything looks and sounds so cool in this movie. On that note, too, I'd forgotten how good the score is of this movie, too. That, like, heavy metal theme yeah. that they have for him is awesome. The opening back in black. Oh, so good, dude. So good. Hell yeah. And the ending, too. Oh, the ending iconic as well. I'm so glad they got that. That would have been such a missed opportunity if they hadn't played that. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> also, kind of going off the sound elements, I love... And again, this is another example of something that doesn't really continue as the MCU goes on. But I love whenever... um. He walks, there is weight to every single step, because there should be, right? I mean, this is a pretty heavy suit. And I also kind of miss the mechanical voice. You know what I'm saying? I, it doesn't, doesn't sound like that in the future. I like how it's not a different actor. I like how it's clearly Robert Downey Jr., but I miss that, like, I'm trying to describe this. Whenever he's inside and he's talking to Jarvis, it sounds like Tony. But if, the, if he's talking to somebody uh, from the Iron Man suit, it, there's like a like a Batman, like Ben Affleck, like reverb to it. I kind of miss that. It sounds really cool. I miss the robotic sound of it. I don't miss the slowness of it when he's talking to the suit. Whenever he's like, whenever he leaves that uh, Afghanistan province and he's like, he's all yours. Like it just takes too sure. long for that delivery to happen. I do like the Afghanistan scene. So it's pretty crazy that I feel like that's probably one of the few MC mo- MCU movies that you actually see people, them killing like normal citizen like everyday yeah. people instead of superhero characters um excuse me did you forget that captain america kills nazis no, the first yeah, Avenger? Keith. That's true. yeah do do you believe that the nazis but even were they real? had some remember they they had weird blood in them and all that right they did you're right we'll get to that they, but there was some weird elements there um 
But yeah, that is a good point. Again, I'm not like trying to shit on Disney completely, but it does feel like some of these kind of crazy, real, like real world connections we don't really get anymore. Like it is so striking to see Iron Man literally fly to Afghanistan in 2008 and like destroy weapons that he created, save people and kind of showing what happened after. It's like, we don't get that anymore. And it's kind of cool to see. And it's, it feels so different. And the first iteration of the script actually had it taking place in the Vietnam War too. That's but right. John Favreau didn't want to make a period piece. Good call, obviously, for the future of the MCU. Kind of worked out timing wise. Yeah. How old would Tony Stark have been in yeah. the MCU if they'd done that? Yeah, that would be weird. They would have had to get fucking Christopher Walken to play him in the modern day. (laughs) Wow. I've never once pictured Robert Downey Jr. growing up to be Christopher Walken. I like it, though. I like it. (laughs) My God. His his cadence completely changes as he gets older. I love you, 3,000, little girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's how dad does it. That's how America does it. The scenes with the Jets following. And um, I think it's probably, probably one of my favorite moments with Terrence Howard is whenever Terrence Howard's on the phone with them and they're going back and forth. I, I like all that, too. I almost feel like you don't need Iron Monger in the third act of this movie. I feel like they, they could have had a way to keep doing stuff like this throughout the movie, and it still would have been pretty satisfying. Yeah, another going back to original scripts, the plan was to have Obadiah Stane as it got closer to this version of the final script. He was just going to be a friend. How he appears in the beginning, he was going to be that confidant. And even when Tony made the call to um, not do weapons, he was going to still try and be a friend and not become a villain until the sequel. In the first one, they were going to try and lean into the Mandarin, the Ten Rings terrorist group aspect. And that ended up changing, obviously. But I agree. I, I would have liked to have not seen that quick transformation just in the third act. But yeah, let's switch gears here just for a second. I wanted to ask you guys something. So now that we're watching WandaVision and we've seen all the entirety of the MCU movies, does it feel more significant now to you guys to hear Vision as Jarvis or see Agent Coulson from S.H.I.E.L.D.? I mean, I know the first time I watched this movie, I had no, I had no idea either of these would go on to play such a big part in the rest of the franchise. So now does it feel different? Does it make Iron Man... Does it make Iron Man 1 feel different watching it now? Weirdly enough, with, with both those characters in this movie, it, it actually makes it feel more connected yeah. to the modern MCU, which I was yeah. not expecting. I thought this one was really going to feel like a standalone movie. But then kind of like I talked about at the beginning, going back and hearing Paul Bettany's vision and seeing Agent Coulson, it feels like it belongs, which I, I really did not expect was going to happen on this viewing. I also like how you guys are calling him Coulson, which was the name of our high school principal. It's Phil Coulson. Coulson. You guys are you guys are in 2008 still, you know? You're thinking of high school, our principal. It's, it's bleeding into this movie for you. <laughs> oh, weirdly enough, that guy looked like Obadiah Stone. Stain Austin. <laughs> Wait, wait, our principal looked like Obadiah? He was bald. That's the only connection. I don't think he looked anything like him. <laughs> he oh. was a bald white man. Keith, I can't wait. You have to listen to our WandaVision episode. Austin <laughs> called Hugh Jackman Hugh Jackson twice. I didn't catch him until the second time. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm love not it good so with much. names. I know. It's okay. It's okay. Um... To your guys' point, though, I love the balance in this movie because these elements you're talking about are so cool in retrospect, but they also work, I feel like, in this movie. Like, Phil Coulson doesn't feel like he's just there to set it up. I I love how he's in there from the beginning, like, hey, we need to debrief Mr. Stark, and he just kind of shows up always like, I need to I need to meet with this guy. And then it ends up helping Pepper when it's like, oh, shit, Obadiah's going to kill me. Here, come with me, come with me. And then he actually helps in the third act. So I like how it stands alone. but. You're so right. It's just so cool now. Here we are so many years later and looking back like Paul Bettany as Jarvis. We won't, I guess, spoil Age of Ultron if you haven't seen it, but how that character kind of evolves. I guess you would say it's pretty cool. And then I also love the line at the end by Coulson where he's like, um, this isn't my first rodeo. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? Well, when you watch Captain Marvel, which takes place in the 90s. You see why it's not his first rodeo. So it, it's kind of cool how, how it feels different. Even something as small as that, like just like a little line, it kind of makes you smile in a different way now. It's like, that's cool. I've seen his first rodeo, if you want to put it that way. And now here we are in Iron Man, which takes place later, and it has just more weight to it. So one thing in this movie that still stands out to me to this day is, we kind of touched on it already, uh, is Tony building the suits in his shop. 
using all the latest gadgets, computers, and technology. These are some of my favorite scenes to watch. Uh, watching him talk to Jarvis and the other robots while kind of combining his intelligence with a good amount of humor. I mean, does does these scenes still stand out for you guys? Dude, these scenes are still so funny. Uh, like a lot, a lot of the comedy in this movie is actually pretty slapstick, but it it works perfectly. And I think it's I think it's just as funny today as when I saw it in theaters. Something I got to call out though, Tony's little helper robots. I don't know how they did it, but they give a more emotional performance than Terrence Howard and Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> disagree disagree that being said the payoff scene where the little robot arm that's kind of been i guess malfunctioning a bit throughout the movie hands him the uh, arc reactor and he's like good boy whenever he's like dying is such a sweet little scene i love it i was gonna say the one that uh he's like i'm gonna donate you to the city college if you uh <laughs> so funny <dude. laughs> the, again perfect line delivery not delivering you to a college a city college <laughs> so that, that fire extinguisher bit will always be funny too oh such a good payoff it got me even this time even though i knew it was coming like waiting probably 10 minutes to pay that off once he falls through the roof <laughs> so good so good but just to the general point, these scenes are so cool. Like, they're funny, but they also balance it with... The tech, of course, in 2008 was different, but it still somehow looks so cool just to see him, like, pull up his old suit and then, like, just, like, grab little pieces and throw them away, even though it's, like, a digital AI thing. And then watching him color the new suit. And then even, like, watching him get into the red and yellow Iron Man suit for the first time still somehow looks cool with the effects and how each, like, little bit and piece of the suit kind of, like clip together and that iconic moment of whenever finally the mask flips down so good dude i also love the little iterations and testing he has to go through like learning how to control the the hand boosters or, or not realizing if i go too high the suit's gonna ice up not realizing how much it weighs not realizing hey if i get dented in combat it's gonna be harder to take this thing off when i come back like all that stuff i felt was so cool and made it it just lended so much to the believability of him building the suit and even just fun i love seeing like him only wear like bits and pieces like whenever he's just wearing the red and yellow uh, glove and he's like it's connected to his arc reactor and it's the first time he's like testing the repulsors it's just ah uh, it's so cool everything about this movie is cool <laughs> unfortunately though all the scenes of him building the suit then also makes it so hard to believe that obadiah can just hop into his and immediately know how to use it yeah, yeah. definitely agreed it's an unfortunate third act i guess the creators wanted us to suspend disbelief but that's an example where it's pretty damn hard so and let's get into that third act so I personally feel like it's really hard to understand Obadiah's motivations by the time we get here, other than just like wanting to sell weapons to both sides and make a bunch of money. Like, why the hell does he build himself a suit? Like, that building that does not seem to further his goals in any way. I could see building a suit for the military, that makes him some money, but building himself a suit just seems so pointless, and it really feels like they just needed a big bad for Tony to fight at the end. And you know why it's funny, too? He got the arc reactor from Tony. That's what he wanted. That's what he was going to pitch to the board to kind of like uh, propel Stark Industries post not having any weapons. And it's like, wow, he actually succeeded. And then he puts it in a big suit. What? Why did he make that? That's not the goal. The goal was to get the re arc reactor. <laughs> like, I'm, I was so confused. He also doesn't seem like the type of character that is wanting to fight anybody. It seems like he just wants to yeah. do his under the table deals and make a bunch of money. It doesn't seem like he has any interest in fighting Iron Man. I know. Yeah. It's it, so weird. Yeah, it's a complete flip of character because, it, yeah, it's all, under, like you said, it's all under the table. I really like Jeff Bridges as Obadiah up until the third act. And I really like the scene whenever he comes up behind Tony's like, who do you think fouled the injunction against you? That's a good scene when they're taking a picture. Great scene. Great scene. It makes him feel like a business villain, not yeah, yeah, somebody that's that going to be fighting Tony Stark at the end of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed. And also, in that fight when he gets the half of the suit ripped off, and it's just Jeff Bridges sitting in the suit, that has not aged well. That looks like trash. Also, <laughs> in the same scene, do you, I've always loved that the exact same event of like Pepper like clicking the button, whatever the fuck happens with the reactor. I love that <laughs> Tony just gets knocked out of the way to safety and it kills Obadiah. Like, what? The same exact thing happened to both of them. But, oh well, we had to kill the villain. He should have he died there and then he also should have died the first time he flew the big metal suit and crash landed into the sand. There's no way he survives that fall. Oh, yeah. He fell like 400 yeah. feet into the desert. Um, I kind of joked earlier about how Obadiah Stain starts the whole trend of kind of not very good villains in the MCU, but it also starts the trend right from the get-go of, like, the MCU, I guess they just felt this urge. Okay, we have a hero. They're in an iron suit, right? So 
the main villain has to have a bigger iron suit. It looks like the fucking Iron Giant. Exactly. It's like, okay, Black Panther has a suit, right? The main villain hasn't had a suit. But here's the thing. The third act, he's going to get a suit. And the catch, it's a slightly different color. They still do the same shit in WandaVision, too. They're like, okay, Scarlet Witch, her powers oh. are red. We're going to introduce another witch. What color, Austin? Purple. <laughs> oh, whoa. Crazy. You oh, can really goodness. see the uh, beginning of the MCU formula in this movie, too. You can tell they've made some calculations in the next couple of movies, but this formula is getting started right with Iron Man. I love but, it. And, and let's talk about some of Obadiah's lines when he's in Oh, my suit. God. I made a few upgrades on my own, Tony. <laughs> and then isn't isn't Tony's response, oh, I think he made some upgrades of his own. It's like, what? Yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Wait, hold on, Keith. I, I don't know why, but this time made me think of you because it made me laugh. I was like, I feel like Keith probably laughed at this too. Whenever he's like, so how don't you fix the ice problem? And he goes, what ice problem? <laughs> yeah, I did laugh at that one too. <laughs> like, that's your response? <laughs> what? It's like a, it's like he says slapstick. Like, oh, what ice problem? Da 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 da. <laughs> I built a suit to my own, Tony. Tony. <laughs> when he dies, you just see his bald head like hang out of the suit. I know, I know, we're audio only, but he literally throws his hands up and just starts shaking. Like, oh! <laughs> he gets like electrocuted. Oh, it was so bad. So we kind of already touched on it a bit, but I think superhero movies in general, a lot of them have a third act problem. Obadiah is by no means a good villain, but what do we think the issue is in general? Like for me, the fight between them sucks. Obadiah's full reveal as the villain never worked for me. And like we said, it's confusing. It's like they reveal within a couple minutes, like watching this movie, you would think, okay, I can kind of track this. Like, like Austin said, it's a good business villain. Once Tony Stark says no more weapons, Obadiah's like, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't like that. And I get his motivations there too, because he's going to fuck with his money. Okay, that makes sense. So just like, leave it that. there. Leave it there. But then they reveal he hired the Ten Rings to capture and kill Tony in the first place. So, okay, I guess his motivation was just, I want to be in charge the whole time. Like, it's so bad. It's just so confusing how fast they reveal that too. And how long has he been playing at this power drive exactly. too? Because he stepped in after Howard Stark died. So him and Tony have had a relationship for years now. And I know. Like why right now is he deciding to do a power grab? Yeah, they say in the beginning that Tony, after Howard Stark died, Obadiah was in charge for a little bit. And then Tony turned 21 and then he was able to like, I guess, whatever that is, like a legal thing. He can now take over. I don't know how old Robert Downey Jr. was in this movie, but he's way older than 21. So to your point, Austin... Was he trying to get back in charge since he was 21, like 20 years ago? Like, how long has it been going on? You're right. I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to track. It's it's so goofy. Yeah. The motivations are the hardest part. Um, I, I do agree with the critics when they said there's a lot of logic defying stuff in this movie. The cave stuff is so well presented. It's so easy to suspend your disbelief there because you're so excited to see what he's building. But all the stuff in the third act with Obadiah, it's so hard to look away from because it's not fun to watch on screen. And... Jeff Bridges' performance kind of falters, I think, too, in the third act. Yeah, you're so right, because it's actually not only like I'm totally fine suspending disbelief, but it's almost like the film encourages you to and pays it off. Like, it makes no sense, but it's so damn cool. Like, I made fun of the line, but it's so cool whenever at the end, the scientist is like, I'm sorry, Mr. Stain, we can't make this. The tech doesn't exist. And he's like, he built this in a fucking cave with just scraps. And it makes you think back, wow, Tony's pretty badass. He's pretty smart that he built this thing without that. So I can suspend disbelief. But now at the end, I'm like, it makes me think back. That was pretty cool. I'm glad I did. It, it, it pays off. But everything else kind of not the same. It's so effective, too, at making you the cave scene is so effective at making you believe Tony Stark is one of the smartest people in the world. Like, I know they set it up at the beginning with his pedigree and all his academic achievements. But then to actually show you, too, it makes you really believe how intelligent Tony Stark is. Yeah, I love it. So like we mentioned at the top, the MCU is the biggest thing in the world now. And I kind of wanted to close with this point. How do we feel about this movie with the specific context of it being the first chapter in this epic saga? We kind of brought this up a little bit, but do you guys feel like it did a good job of establishing this universe or do you more look at it as this is a standalone movie that kind of just lucked out and it ended up being built upon with tone and other aspects in the future? 
So how do you guys look at this movie looking back on it so many years later? Was it a standalone that became something bigger or like, do you kind of appreciate how it always fit in? Does it fit in? That's what I'm curious to hear about. Yeah, I really expected to watch this movie today and think, man, this was a standalone and the Marvel really saw their opportunity at what this could be. But watching it today, like we kind of talked about, Agent Coulson, Nick Fury in the post credit scene, Paul Bettany as Jarvis, it feels really connected to the MCU. And it's so cool to go back and realize Marvel had this vision from the beginning and they executed it so perfectly. Of course, there were some movies that faltered along the way, but overall... They had this vision from 2008, and today in 2021, it's still one of the biggest things to ever hit the box office. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with that. Um, But I do think it can be a standalone if you want it to be. Like, in the sense that, I mean, I watched it with my dad the other night. My dad has no interest in the MCU MCU universe, but he does like Iron Man a lot. He's always loved Iron Man. And he has never watched any of the other Iron Mans. He's never watched any of the other uh, MCU movies. But he just loves Iron Man for... Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, all the things we kind of covered earlier with the whole Iron Man suits and him working in the shop, and then just the overall uh, action in the movie. He loves it. Um, so I, th- I think it does it does have that potential to stand alone. But then I'm with you, Austin. I mean, it does obviously connect to the MCU. Keith, I think um, I think we have to make this a new segment, but I think you should watch all of Phase I was gonna One. Say. Like, watch all these movies with your dad, and then towards the end of every episode, we'll check in and you let us know what your dad's thoughts were Ooh, on the yeah. MCU movie that you watched. That might be fun. You just tell your dad, oh my God, and the way your dad speaks too, you should, and the way like he's so concise, you should see if you can watch it and then say, okay, dad. I want you to give me one sentence that you thought, and then we'll just read that at the end. <laughs> oh. I agree with you guys. I think, it, to put it simply, it's it's a movie that feels like it is setting up for a sequel, but at the time, we didn't know that that meant this was going to lead to an Avengers crossover that included the Hulk, Captain America, Thor, Hawkeye, Black Widow, like crazy. Um, so it does set up in a cool way. But at the same time, I agree with Keith. It just, it's a fun movie to watch. Like, if we weren't doing this little, like, retrospective, like, review series or whatever, like, I could have just watched this today on a whim and not needed to watch the rest. It works on its own. It's fun. So it's just so cool. And now it has the extra benefit of looking back on it 13 years later. And wow, this pays off even more with how it connects. So they just lucked out and it's really cool. So good on them. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for the bulk of our discussion on Iron Man today. But before we get out of here, we, of course, have to do the Arnie's Podcast Awards. This is a segment where we give an award for anything in this episode. Keith, why don't you start us off today? Let's think about this one. I think I'm going to give an award to Mr. Terrence Howard for the best the best way to say Tony's name. Terrence says it like this. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. I love it. I'm happy Terrence Howard finally gets recognized and then replaced for his role <laughs> as Rhodey. <laughs> but I'm going to give an award today to the one and only Jeff Bridges. He's going to get the ultimate pizza delivery man because apparently anytime he has bad news, he just shows up with pizza to the Stark Mansion. And I've got to say, I wouldn't mind having Jeff Bridges deliver me some pizza. That pizza looked good too. <laughs> I'd rather have him in character as the dude delivering me pizza. Oh, that would be cool. Hey, man. I'm going to give an award today to, it's iconic, guys. We have to give it some recognition and some praise. I'm giving an award to the man himself, Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man. Is it for most funny? Is it for most popular? No. It's for the sharpest beard. Parts of his beard and his little goatee look so sharp, you could cut diamonds on them. <laughs> that little piece under his <laughs> lip that, like, is, should go left, but goes inward and goes right. It's like, that looks like a knife. <laughs> so I'm giving an award because... And you know what? I'm also going to give an additional award to the hairdresser. Whoever designed this facial hair deserves some praise because it is sharp. Well, that is going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really do appreciate that so we can continue to grow the show. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. And hey, if you feel like leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be just swell. But even if you don't want to write anything, a starred rating really does help on that service to help us continue to grow the show. The MCU series will continue in two weeks. Our main episode next week will be dedicated to a favorite movie picked by our very own Matt Johnson. And I have the announcement of what movie that will be Ooh. live for you guys. 
It's a movie I've talked about on this program before. All I'll say is, I hope you guys have a free three hours, baby. We're watching Cloud Atlas. Oh, We're doing no. it. We're doing it. You are doing it. Oh, my it! God. Cloud Atlas. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I guess we'll be back next week for the longest recording of the Arnie's ever put to put to audio because we're doing cloud well, it's gonna be the shortest because it's only gonna be me on the show <laughs> you guys won't be able to come <laughs> last minute <laughs> all right so yes we'll be back with cloud atlas next week look forward to it and also everybody out there you're welcome enjoy your three plus hours uh wandavision it's almost over guys i'm kind of sad about it one episode left we will be back next week as well to cover the finale and like austin mentioned we'll also be back in two weeks to talk about not mark ruffalo but Edward Norton as the Incredible Hulk. So that will be interesting as well. Um, on top of that, just last thing to mention, Austin and I did just put out the second episode of our monthly co-op couch series where we just talk about everything and anything to do with games. This time we ran down the big gaming news of February and we talked about what are the best levels in video game history. So check that out. And go check us out on Instagram at The Arnie's. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode and upcoming episodes. Please go back and catch up on WandaVision and give us your theories on that. Also, please go back and listen to our rom-com movie bracket uh, where we break down the best rom-coms. Wedding Crashers, About Time. That's just a couple I can think of off the top of my head. Go see which one makes it to the top and give us your favorite rom-coms that you'd like to see on a future bracket. And you know what? We always ask for these like these pleasantries, these nice messages, your favorite things. You know what I want this week? Send us some hate. Tell us why you hate the show. Tell us why yeah, we suck. Us Tell us why we should never record again. Let us know. Shit on us. Send us a message at the Arnie's on Instagram. I look forward to reading them. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. We'll talk to you guys soon. Have a great week. That's how dad does it. That's how America does it. My impression's not very good, guys. Let's, let's just end the show. Yeah.